Have you heard? Sling TV offers the news you love for less. Hey, wait. You look and sound just like me. I am you. I'm the same news programs on Sling TV for less. You mean you're me, but for less money. A lot less. I'm all the favorite news programs and more on Sling TV starting at just $40 a month. Everything great about me, but for less money? Which makes me greater, don't you think? Get the news you love and more for less. Start saving today. Visit Sling.com to see your offer. Sling. For exclusive podcasts and more, sign up at Patreon.com slash Partners in Crime Media. This week's Law and Order Marathon winner is Anna Lane of Florence, South Carolina. Anna will get a marathon decal showing she watched 26.2 hours of her favorite crime show. To be next week's winner, sign up at lawandorderpodcast.com. I'm Kevin Flynn with Rebecca Lavoie and Lisa Strawn, and these are their stories. You think you know who did it, but you don't know who did it. Law and order, law and order, law and order. It's no ordinary police procedural, baby. It's the FNOG of police procedure. Welcome to These Are Their Stories, the podcast about network TV's most enduring crime franchise and the real-life cases that inspired their shows. I'm Kevin Flynn. Each podcast will break down an episode from either Criminal Intent, SVU, or Original Recipe. And today, we're looking at Law & Order Season 14, Episode 24, COD. I'll bet you all a steak dinner that Belinda Gardner killed John Byrne. Two women who don't know each other meet in a cafe and agree to kill each other's husbands. Something out of Alfred Hitchcock. Joining me to do just that is true crime author and the host of Crime Writers On and Netflix's You Can't Make This Up podcasts, Rebecca Lavoie. Hello, Rebecca. Fun fact, Kevin. When I was 13, I actually looked it and I was not 24. What? <laughs> like that actress in the episode? Oh, my God. She's supposed to be 13. She's like she's 35. I'm sure everybody who watched this in 2004 (laughs) remembers that tiny detail. All right, let's move along and welcome our special guest from the Don't Talk to Strangers podcast. It's Lisa Strawn. Hello, Lisa. Hello. Tell us about your relationship with Law & Order. Let's get on the couch here for a second. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Well, I grew up in a small town that literally our cable had 16 channels, I think, Mm -hmm. at first. I think we we were up to 23 when I went to college. Um, And, you know, one of those basically played Law & Order SVU all the time. Only one of them? Well, probably multiple, but, you know, (laughs) I could only watch one at a time. So, uh, you know, I grew up watching... I never... I've never watched any of them in order, but I grew up watching whatever came on all the time. And then um, I got to college and I had a couple of other, um, I was a math major and there were only three other math majors. I went to a small college and two of them were SVU fiends. And so we would study math and watch SVU, the newest ones at that time. So that's the first time I ever started watching them kind of in order. And, you know, ever since then, it's just been kind of comfort food. Lisa, of all the franchises, which two cops are your favorite detective team? Favorite Law and Order detective team. Gorn and Eanes. Nice. Oh, that's a good pick. Really good pick. I have a, a, a deeper appreciation for Catherine Irby. Why? Well, I just, the more I watch Criminal Intent, the more I kind of like her character. She's awesome. Then I also realized she also did have to work with D'Onofrio for a a decade, and she didn't kill him, so she must be (laughs) a wonderful person. She seems lovely. Yeah, he did take away a little bit, but, you know, the... uh 
you know, the artist from the art or whatever. But no, I like <laughs> I didn't discover criminal intent until I was in college and I really liked the braininess of it. It became my favorite for, I don't know, like a couple of years when, you know, after college, but before kids, when I could watch all the things, then that's I watched a lot of it then. And who's your favorite prosecutorial team? Favorite law and order district attorney prosecutorial team. I like Alex. Ooh, mm-hmm. Cabot. Not very good choice. Classic choice. You like them tall, apparently. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right, let's take a look at the first half of this episode, Law & Order, Season 14, Episode 24, COD. Well, no sooner has delivery man John Byrne dropped off a package for another insufferable Upper West Side housewife than he's gunned down in the street with a thirty-eight. Briscoe and Green learned nothing was taken in the envelope he had given his life to deliver was empty. A random shooting? Well, that or a setup. What makes you think that? John Byrne worked for RME Express for six years. He was on his regular route. The package he delivered was empty. They knew where he'd be and what time he'd be there. Ed's checking with the company about the package right now. Mrs. Adele Byrne is a humble city parks worker who says her marriage was strong and her husband would work overtime to make ends meet. But his boss says, you didn't work no fucking overtime. <laughs> Seems he would punch the clock and jam his cock into Gloria, <laughs> an office she worker did. around his roots. And yes, she did accept his package and liked it. Uh, but she, it, it, would, it would get there before this 9 a.m. The start of this episode is legit of like a very bad 1980s porno. Yeah. 100%. <laughs> it could have gone down real fast. But Gloria stopped going to the motel with him when he found out that he was next daying it with a third woman. <laughs> a surveillance tape shows an angry mistress kicking him with some limited edition sneakers that you can only find in Amsterdam in the 70s. And sure enough, that's where they find Blair. She's got an alibi that includes getting her landing strip waxed. <laughs> but she does say that Adele Byrne knew of her husband's affairs and threatened her. The detectives quiz Adele, who's just getting around to clearing last fall's leaves in May, and she denies owning the gun, and her supervisor was kind of sure that she was at Riverside Park that day. Adele made an ATM withdrawal from a gun store in Vermont and got a thirty-eight. She admits, yes, well, she did once own a gun, but it was in her purse, and that got stolen months ago. Van Buren points out if Adele did want to get rid of a pistol, she works right next to the Hudson River. While they supervise the search in this random six-foot stretch of the river, Lenny tells Ed that he's putting in his papers and will finally retire from the NYPD. Boo. And that's when a diver, who's barely had time to get wet, pulls out the Smith & Wesson. The cops find Adele at a high-end coffee shop and arrest her. Okay, there are a few less dignified ways to die than wearing a pair of work shorts. <laughs> Jorts. <laughs> Jorts. I mean, you, we've all seen the delivery people wearing those shorts. Can you just imagine one sprawled out upside down on a staircase, bleeding into his own face? I got to tell in you. In shorts? Did you not, Lisa, feel horrible for that actor who had to lie upside down on those concrete steps for what you know was hours of people just standing around drinking coffee while they like set up different angles of the camera right and then for like three seconds of it to be used at the end like (laughs) (laughs) well like do you see him twice once when the his body is discovered right after getting shot and there's a little bit of blood yeah (laughs) and then by the time that 
Lenny and Ed show up. He's been bleeding a while. Oh, yeah. So the, the he was probably still alive. The makeup guy said, "Okay, we got to throw a lot more blood on no, the face." You only bleed when you're alive. Oh my god! Well, there's gravity too. He's probably right? still alive, and but he's leaking. <laughs> so the widow Adele says, "Oh, it's like he works so much overtime, and girl, you know he isn't working overtime. Cold as ice. He gets out at noon, and of course he's fucking somebody else." <laughs> so they go and they talk to his coworker, who says, oh, "You two are close, huh?" I'm carrying the casket at his funeral. Me and some of the other drivers. And when they got to the church, they made the priest sign for him with one of those handheld devices <laughs> with the little pen. <laughs> Beep. Yeah, what's the last name, Father? The, the pen that doesn't actually take a signature. It just makes a couple lines no matter what you sign. <laughs> yeah, who's checking that later? <laughs> I have a question. Yeah. So the mom who's home with her not 13-year-old daughter, I'm sorry about the obscure joke at the beginning, but Lisa, that girl was not 13, right? Oh, no, she was like, I have a 12-year-old, and that girl was at least five years from now. Like, <laughs> <laughs> Sign for her here, ma'am. Next day, huh? You don't have a 13-year-old daughter. This too shall pass. Before you know it, you'll be crying at her wedding. No doubt. Thanks. So who among us, when hearing gunshots outside their house that are so close that you would immediately duck, would then immediately run outside to see what I was wanted going that on. too, especially sitting there with your kids. I'd be like ushering her into the back bedroom and calling the police. Like they were right outside the door. So I have a question also about the delivery guy. Yeah. He was really friendly. Was he not trying to get in her pants too? That was my question. Well, <laughs> well I did assume that that it was going to have been sent to her because he was cheating with her or something like that. There was uh-huh. going to be a reason that that you would shoot someone right in front of someone else's house because you know, or right in front of the 12-year-old, but apparently not. Apparently, he's just that friendly with everybody. But the logistics are difficult. So if I send uh, you a package, Lisa, with the intent of shooting Kevin because he's going to deliver that package to your house, I don't know what time of day he's going to go to your house. Like, you know, you know. <laughs> you got a whole room. You know, you, you get a thing like your Amazon package is going to arrive today. It might be nine. It might be nine at night. You don't know. Maybe... She gets a lot of Amazon packages that he delivers, and so he always delivers them about the same time. And that's why it was sent to her specifically, because he Mm. always gets to her house at the same time every day. It's true. The mailman comes the same time every day, but the package delivery bill. Yeah, right? They come when they're ready to... You know, when they're not banging their girlfriends on the side, apparently. <laughs> so they watch the videotape from the motel. Oh, my God. And John and Blair walk in and appointed nine minutes later. Here's where it gets exciting. Nine minutes later. Nine minutes? These young guys have no staying power. Oh, look at the happy couple. Hey, can you freeze on where she's kicking them? Yeah, back it up. And in an absolute Bobby Gorn moment, they zoom in on one foot... And Ed Green says, you know, those are limited edition shoes that you can only get in one place. I call bullshit. (laughs) Lisa, if you had a two-timing hound dog of a guy, would you even kick him with those expensive shoes? No. I mean, I wouldn't wear those expensive shoes to that hotel. What if somebody, like, stole them off of you at that point? Because that was a pretty seedy hotel. So I have a logistical (laughs) question about this moment of forensic genius, right? Okay. So first off, they're just standing there. And Ed says, zoom in, correct? Right. Which right. means he couldn't tell what kind of shoes they were when they were far out. Like, we all saw the video. It did not look like anything. He said, zoom in. Yeah. Look at that. Wait. Oh, I thought they were ruby slippers. Does he have like a sixth sense? 
For limited edition sneakers only available in one store in New York, kind of like Ice Tea in future SVU episodes. Well, I think as we you know pointed out that you know Gorin would just know everything about everything. True. Ed Green knows about shoes. I mean, but I really don't think that Ed Green is a sneaker kind of guy. No, he's a suit kind of guy. He's a suit kind of guy. He's a dress shoe kind of guy. He's the Gorin like they only sell this. Uh, I will point hide. out those are women's shoes, too. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> they only sell in one place. And maybe he has a daughter who has been asking for those specific shoes, and so he's been looking at them a lot, and he's seen them in little thumbnails a lot, so then mm. he recognized them as a grainy little... Which my favorite thing about this moment is how when you zoom in on the security footage, it gets clearer. Yes. Which yeah, that <laughs> is not a thing. Isn't, yeah. And her face, too. It, like, it's, like, it's like a blocky, pixely picture, and they zoom in on her face, and it just resolves into high def and it's like that's not how video works but it's, they put a progressive lenses on like oh i can see it better now it's so funny <laughs> kevin you've been to new york many, yeah, many times with me like obviously i'm from new york uh the I've idea been to amsterdam in the 70s but there are two moments in this show we'll talk about the other one later where like a cop and it's ed green both times knows of a store on a block at a place if you've ever been to New York, you know, on that same block, there are like 17 other shoe stores. <laughs> and then on that same block where that freaking cafe is, there are 17 other cafes. And the place you can buy luggage. It and, is yeah. so big. Like the idea that you would know of the one small place that sells that one thing is the stupidest fucking thing I've ever seen. On Just the show. idea that only one place would sell a shoe yes. is, yeah, because th- they could also have been six versions of knockoffs that you could buy also. That's from, true. From a guy with a blanket on the street. Yeah, it's like, we better get down to Chinatown. <laughs> is this the first time ever that a pubic wax has been used as an alibi on the show? Oh my God. Her alibi panned out? In a manner of speaking. Turned out she was getting a bikini wax. It was something called a sphinx. Don't ask. I wish I hadn't. <laughs> I want to know. Do they said, well, can we see it? <laughs> I mean, we I need was, to confirm that alibi. Let's taken, see that hoo-ha. I was taken aback. <laughs> I was taken aback by the brazenness of the alibi. And it's just like, to me, just, I mean, Blair, like, she's very comfortable in her womanhood and her sexuality and her hair removal situation that she's cool kicks throw it out there she's not just like i was at the spa or i was at a salon i was getting a bikini wax oh she wanted to disarm them so that they wouldn't check into it that's <laughs> yeah <laughs> see that's right yeah. <laughs> like if ed green knows that those are limited edition expensive sneakers he knows what a sphinx is right oh god this, you, <laughs> i know you 100 percent looked it up right yeah, it's a Brazilian, but I, maybe it's a certain kind of Brazilian, the technique. I don't know, but that's essentially, there's nothing left. The amount of detail in that storyline was crazy. There was almost as much detail in her alibi waxing storyline as there was in his retirement. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we have a couple of Hey, It's That Guys. Hey, it's that guy. Can you name me the actor who is playing Aaron Solomon, who happens to be Belinda's defense attorney? You don't have a murder weapon, and you have absolutely no forensics. No? Shaking heads? No. Okay, that gentleman's name is Tony Award winner John Benjamin Hickey. Ten Law & Order appearances, Whoa. including... Law and Order Los Angeles. That's a special one. No one watches that one. He was nominated for an Emmy on Showtime's comedy The Big C, because cancer is hilarious. <laughs> uh, he's also been in shows like It's All Relative, The Good Wife, and Manhattan, playing the head scientist on the Manhattan Project, Frank Winter. But he's a Broadway guy. 
He's a broad, well, he's a broad. You well, said Tony Award winning. What's the Tony for? Yeah, that's he's a I theater guy. <laughs> I don't know what the Tony was of for. Of course you don't. It wasn't Hamilton. I know it's that. It's so funny. Like, you know, I know theater people listen to this show, and mm-hmm. this is not a diss. However, theater people think that everybody knows who all the theater actors are. <laughs> we do not. We do not know. We do not know who was in Grey Gardens. We do not know who was in the original cast of Hamilton, besides the two people we do know who are in the original cast. It's just not a thing that, like, America knows. But if you are a theater person, you think everybody knows, right? Yeah, because you probably had lunch with them, <laughs> meaning that they probably waited on your table. <laughs> We do have a Hey, It's That Girl. Hey, it's that girl. Can you tell us who is playing Ann Paulson, who is the defense attorney for Adele? You have absolutely no proof she's the shooter. Our motion to dismiss will be on your desk. End of business. Nope. Couple of squinting eyes. No, no chance. Okay, that's uh, Glynis O'Connor in the 1970s. She was in A Million Things. She dated Robbie Benson. And who wouldn't have? Remember Robbie Benson? No. Oh, my God. Okay, never mind. Dude, you just defined a woman by who she dated. That was not cool. I, no, I just wanted to name drop Robbie Benson. <laughs> Come on. Uh, she played Gina, John Travolta's girlfriend, <gasps> in The Saturday Boy Fever? in the Plastic Bubble. Oh, that one. I thought you were going to say Saturday Night Fever. No, no, no. <laughs> do you remember The Boy in the I, Plastic Bubble? I sure do. The Boy in the Bubble, right? Where he like was in there because he had some disease. Yeah. Yes. And they had to touch like through the hole in the plastic bubble. Travolta was surprisingly comfortable kissing a woman on the other side of a sheet of plastic. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what that meant. I don't think I've ever seen that movie. Unless you're 50. I've seen the Seinfeld episode that was based on that Bubble Boy. Bubble Boy. (laughs) So can you name the actress playing Belinda Gardner? I've never even met the man. I don't know anyone named John Byrne. No, I I didn't recognize any of the actors, and I'm really disappointed in how many there were. Was she in the original cast of Hamilton? No, (laughs) no, no. Her name is Victoria Dillard. Uh, You may remember her as Janelle from Spin City. Oh, remember, yeah. yeah. I remember Spin City. Yeah, right. I've never seen Spin City. I was just talking about that literally yesterday that I've never watched Spin City. Well, you got it. You'll remember her from that. And she was also in shows, uh, movies like Deep Cover and Ali. Her first appearance on film was in Coming to America. Who was she? She was one of the topless women who bathed <laughs> Eddie Murphy, which is why I didn't recognize her face. Because <laughs> you were too busy looking at her babes. I says, like, wait a minute. <laughs> Those look like 1970s comedy boobs. 1980s comedy <laughs> 1980s, that long ago. Wow, yeah. yeah. Well, maybe she'll be in the sequel. You know there's a sequel. Yeah, yeah. with a bra this time, though. <laughs> yeah. Uh, how about the woman playing Jeanette Gardner, who is the, the sister, Randall's, the, the victim's sister, the one who was the artist? Trying to make it as a painter, but I've sold, like, three pieces. <laughs> if it wasn't for Randall, I'd be living in a rented room somewhere in Bridge and Tunnel Land. No idea who played her. No. <laughs> That's Tokes Alugundoye. She, uh, we know her as, as Haley Shipton on Castle and Jackie from NBC's The Neighbors. Oh, if you've watched those shows, she's had a recurring. We know her from. I mean, Kevin, you and Some I have Some people never, know her from. We've never watched <laughs> Someone shows may yet. know her from. I'm super disappointed because I am a hey, it's that guy person. Like when I yeah. watch anything, I recognize all the people and I'm like, you know, I'll spend a whole movie trying to think of where I saw him, and I'll be like, oh, he was the brother's dad in some show, and I didn't recognize any of these people as familiar. And I also did not cheat on IMDb. Don't you feel great that we did not cheat? 
Yeah, because I've got so many great deep cuts. <laughs> <laughs> Look, if I if I skipped tokes, people would say that I hated tokes, and so yeah. I didn't want to do that. Now you can't do it. I mean, she has had some, you know, big uh, on-camera roles. She's also done a lot of voice work. You can hear her on DuckTales mm. in Carmen oh. San Diego, and in 2015, she married Sean Quinn, whom she met on Twitter. What? Oh, wow! Yeah, she met a guy on Twitter and said, "Hot." That's, yeah, that's <laughs> that's how we're doing it. Fun fact: my cousin met his wife Natalie on Twitter. Really? Yes. Fun fact. I met Lisa on Twitter. Yeah, I did too. <laughs> That's true. What I was about to say was, how do you become that close to someone that you met on Twitter? But, you know, never mind. Dick pics. <laughs> right? I guess that's It finally true. worked for somebody. She's like, whoa. <laughs> Sliding into those DMs. Sliding into those DMs, yeah. Lastly, who is the detective examining the videotape that we usually see running a piece of paper in a Van Buren's office? I want to thank you guys for all the cool videos. Hey, anything interesting? There's a couple of things so far. Is that... No. What? I don't know. I don't want to say it and get it wrong. Well, go ahead. Take a shot. It's not Profaci, obviously. Oh, Profaci. No, no. It's that that other one. It's the one who was the street cop guy. It's the female Profaci. Ah. So playing Detective Anna Cordova for the 14th and final time (gasps) She's exposition pusher Anna Cordova. Yes. Oh, how did I miss that? Yes. uh, The actress's name is Andrea Nevado. Like I said, she's the new Profaci. Uh, she's best known as Samara on Jane the Virgin, hmm. Jane's biological mom. I just knew Jane the Virgin as the show that came on after Crazy Ex-Girlfriend. Yes. Uh, the musical with such great songs as Let's Generalize About Men, <laughs> I Gave You a UTI, Yes. Period Sex, Yes. and I Love My Daughter, parentheses, but not in a creepy way. That's right. One of the greatest shows ever on the history of television. Crazy Wait, Crazy Ex-Girlfriend is a musical? And I yes. haven't watched oh. this? Oh, Lisa. Oh, Lisa. It is so strongly in your wheelhouse. You need to fucking watch that show immediately. What did this come on? It's on, it on CW. A- yeah, on CW. and it's over now, so you can watch the whole thing. Yeah, I'll have to find it. If it was on like HBO, I would know where to find it. But if it was on CW, I'll have to hunt for oh, it. Maybe yeah. it's on Hulu. I have to watch it. You forgot the Jap rap battle. Oh, I love the chat. Jewish American princess. We got egged on like Seda plates. Never mind. <laughs> so in order to get to Bennington, they say, you know, Green says, It'd be nice to find out the who, what, and where. Yeah, Vermont's a four-hour drive. Not if we go lights and sirens. But we could do it faster if we go there with lights and sirens. So you know that's not a soundproof car. You're talking about <laughs> three hours with a siren going overhead the whole time. It's like the, Chinese, it's like the Chinese water torture. <laughs> Driving up 91 through that 84 interchange, just like, woo, woo. No, no good. No yeah. good. And then the gun dealer tries to get out of it by saying, A lot of people drop in just to use the cash machine. I don't pay much attention. You know, people come in here all the time to use that ATM. Do they? Yeah, they come in there to buy a goddamn gun. Like the not even just the fact that she would use an ATM in that town four hours away, but the one in the gun shop. Like she wouldn't yeah. even like go across town to where she could possibly be like, Oh no, I was buying something off Facebook Marketplace, you know. Well, for Adele, proximity is a problem because not only does she withdraw the money five steps away from where she commits a federal gun crime, but apparently she or maybe somebody who was supposed to be her disposes of that gun in the water right where she works? Yeah. By that park? Yeah, why not? She's right there. No, that wasn't her gun. That was the gun she used, wasn't it? They swapped. It was the gun that she... Oh, but it Vermont. didn't kill him. Right, you're but right. Right, right. Right, right. But, I mean, Eve, couldn't you just frisbee it out a little farther? 
I mean, the, <laughs> those divers went like straight down. They're like, here's the gun. Mm. It's New York. Are you sure that's the gun? It was like as she was walking by, she just slipped it down instead of she didn't even toss it out. She just kind of dropped it next to her as she walked by. You know what I kept thinking when she what? was like, do you know how hard it is to buy a gun legally in New York? Thanks, Bernie Getz. <laughs> <laughs> if it's so hard, why do you get rid of it so easily? Exactly. It's a hot commodity. So Lenny finally tells Ed and the audience what he's been hinting at all episode. At first, he has this nice scene with AVB. And the affection, I think, is genuine between the two characters. Have you told him yet? I just haven't found the right moment. So what's it been for you and me? 11 years? Something like that. It's the longest I was ever with any woman. Now, that's pitiful. <laughs> and even though he just spent, I don't know, six hours alone in a car with Green, uh, maybe the siren was on the whole way. That's why they didn't talk. He now chooses this moment, this quiet moment, to tell his partner that he's retiring. What is up with you? I'm putting on my papers, Ed. What? It's time. Really? What are you gonna do? I don't know, play golf, shoot pool, lay around in the sun. I get bored, maybe I try the DA's office, pick up an investigation here and there, you know. Oh. Damn, Lenny. Here's Briscoe talking about the life that he would like to live now. And I think it's very sweet and looking back, kind of sad knowing that both this actor and this character will be dead in a couple of months. Yeah, it's like he's going to cross the Rainbow Bridge. Oh, God. That's all I could think about. Like, we have a dog named Briscoe. I'm like, Briscoe's crossing the Rainbow Bridge. So sad. It's so sad. Lumiere is going going to be snuffed out by the candle holder of life. It is very sad. I don't know about keep that. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I thought that it was anticlimactic for the moment. Like, it was very sudden. They tried to kind of lead up to it without taking over the episode. But, you know, I really would have expected a lot more of, you know, like, oh, you know, a bit of walk down memory lane or something Mm -hmm. that really emphasized his, you know, skill or or whatever. Yeah, it, it it was very sudden of just like, you know, just tear the Band-Aid off. And, and, and even afterwards, there wasn't a lot of reminiscing or anything. The, the, I, the whole episode wasn't the dramatic finish that I would have expected for him. Like, there is yeah. no sort of, like, love for the character in this. And also, like, logistically speaking, why on this show it always happens? The cop tells everyone, like, the day they're doing it. That is just not how it works in the real world. Like, you know how it works. You're strutting around work for, like, a year being like, I'm retiring in a year, motherfuckers. (laughs) I'm retiring in six months, motherfuckers. You are not like, I'm retiring today. It's just not the way it works. It's like, you know, Ed, we got in the car and somewhere around Stockbridge. (laughs) I said, you know. Have you heard? Sling TV offers the news you love for less. Hey, wait. You look and sound just like me. I am you. I'm the same news programs on Sling TV for less. You mean you're me, but for less money. A lot less. I'm all the favorite news programs and more on Sling TV starting at just $40 a month. Everything great about me, but for less money? Which makes me greater, don't you think? Get the news you love and more for less. Start saving today. Visit Sling.com to see your offer. Sling. All right, now take a look at the second half of this episode. 
Under interrogation, Adele Burns denies shooting her husband and the ballistics on her gun don't match the slugs in the victim. While Lenny files his papers, Ed checks for another random shooting with a 38. Which name is Randall Gardner? Gardner, Gardner. You know anything about him? He was loaded. He was in the real estate. His wife runs some kind of high-end coffee shop as a hobby. Yeah, Gardner's Cafe. Right, right. You look at her? The first thing we thought of is she was alibied real tight and we could not make it a four hire. Extended release lesbian capsule Serena <laughs> Sutherland <laughs> interviews Randall Gardner's widow, Belinda. Randall had put his free spending wife on an allowance and now she'll inherit $13 million. But she too has a solid alibi for her husband's murder. Then the plot twist. Ballistic shows Belinda's husband was shot with Adele's gun, but the gun that killed Adele's husband is still missing. McCoy's case against Adele is strong, but the one against Belinda is circumstantial without the weapon. Stuck in a chicken or egg situation where he can't convict one without first convicting the other and vice versa, the judge orders separate trials. That's when district attorney and future capital insurrectionist Arthur Branch Mm. suggests trying them simultaneously. Serena's prosecution of Adele is chugging along, but down the hall, McCoy is having problems with Belinda's case. Her defense attorney calls in the boss of Byrne's other mistress, Gloria, who says a handgun was found in the office trash can after the shooting. The cops test that gun, and it's a match for John Byrne's murder weapon. Serena gets a conviction of Adele for killing Belinda's husband, but the jury acquits Belinda for killing Adele's husband thanks to reasonable doubt that the gun was found in Gloria's office. Before she can be sentenced, McCoy asks Adele why was it they chose Belinda's gun to plant and leave her conviction more likely. Armed now with her cooperation, Jack goes back to court. Double jeopardy, double schmeppardy. (laughs) (laughs) Belinda can't go down again for John's death. Now they'll charge her with murder for hire in Randall's death. To avoid a life sentence, she agrees to a plea deal. Meantime, back at the 2-7, Briscoe puts... 10 years of shit in a one-year box and bids the squad adieu. Mm. Okay, so Randall did the only thing worse than cheating on his Upper West Side wife. He put her on an allowance. Yeah. What is she, 12? Mm. If you had a rich husband, would you get mad if he said you can't spend as much? This whole thing, this whole relationship just baffles me. He gave her a cafe to keep her busy? Yes. Is that correct? Like, yes. Um, you need something to do. Obviously, he's never Serve worked cannolis. In a, I mean, here's the whole thing. Like, anyone who's ever worked in retail or a restaurant knows that's not busy work. That's fucking hard-ass work. A. Yeah. B, $13 million is not a lot of fucking money, even in, like, 19-whatever-this-is, early 2000s New York. Like, It's still enough to kill. You are not living on a high-end Upper West Side terraced apartment and able to buy a cafe if you're only got 13 grand. Wait a minute, this has got a good point. So he bought her a cafe and gives her an allowance. So what did she do? Is that like doing chores around the house? It's like, if you take out the trash and make your bed, here's your $700 a month. Right, like nobody cares if the cafe makes any money. That's not the profit she gets. She just gets her allowance. (laughs) Yeah. Isn't a cafe more expensive than 100 pairs of shoes? That's what I was thinking. (laughs) (laughs) Especially a poorly run cafe, like a poorly run cafe, assuming she has no business knowledge and isn't just wonderful at management, which I would assume she's not. A poorly run cafe seems like it would be way more of a money drain than a 
shopping wife. Sure, when it only attracts potential murderers. <laughs> so what ends up happening is that instead of doing one trial with the two defendants, they do two separate trials, and they're like, "Yeah, hey, how am I going to be in both places at the same time? <gasps> so Serena gets to do a trial on her own. Big girl. And all of a sudden she goes old school McCoy, right? I didn't want to admit that I bought a gun illegally. Okay, so that's one felony you admit to lying about. Does it get easier the second time around? Objection! Sustained. Manners, Miss Sutherland. And then, meantime, Jack is in the other courtroom sitting by himself. Not really doing a great job here, but he's got a difficult case. But again, it's the two of them alone. And I guess that just kind of proves that when Serena's there, she's just doing nothing but making a face. (laughs) They don't really need her there at all. But she's a good lawyer. Imagine that she's the one who gets fucking fired later and not him. She won. Well, McCoy isn't a lesbian. (laughs) Is this because I'm a lesbian? It seems like there's more than two people in that office, right? I mean, they couldn't get like two other schlubs to. What does the second person at the table do, though? In this in this show, they do nothing. They are completely superfluous. Carrie Lowell just sat there. Um, Serena Sutherland just sits there. It's not like they use, you know, in real life, the co-counsel is a co-counsel and sometimes gets up and also questions. Not in this fucking show. If Jack McCoy's lead, it's Jack McCoy and the woman who's sitting there, her job is this. I know it's a podcast, but this is what it is. There's a nod. She's nodding. (laughs) Looking at you and Mm -hmm, nodding. mm -hmm. (laughs) Or making that look like... (sighs) (laughs) <laughs> maybe maybe their job is to like listen and make sure that they're making sense. And so then they're, they're saying, yes, you're making sense. You're telling a story. You're doing the right thing. A couple thing. of times a year, she has to like write a note and say, be like something like, Jack, when we police interviewed him, he said he had no twin brother. You know, it's something like that. <laughs> right. And then she's always the smart one who comes up with a thing, but he's the one who gets to talk. Well, they have to have someone as backup because they retire in one day in this world. So in case he decides to retire tomorrow, this is the day. they need someone else to be able to try the case. <laughs> Tell that to Ruberosa. <laughs> McCoy got promoted. like, no, you're going nowhere. We're bringing in some English guy with a bad American accent. It's true. Hey, we have to see Jack McCoy in jeans in this episode. Yeah, he, rides, he still rides his motorcycle. Which we never see. We just know he rides a motorcycle. We never, ever see it. The weather got good. That's because people who ride motorcycles talk all the time about how they ride a motorcycle. <laughs> it's like people who have Pelotons, right? It's the same fucking thing. <laughs> I used to have a motorcycle. <laughs> Raise your hand if you ever found a handgun in the office recycling bin. <laughs> no, am I the only one? You found a handgun in your office recycling bin? Of course I didn't. <laughs> what would you do? Uh, call the cops like they did i don't know Keep i mean it's it kind recycling? of a stupid place to like dump a gun like I mean, someone picks up the bag like oh what's this heavy thing in here is it recyclable according you know, it could have been a stapler i don't know why like the janitor is digging down i was thinking it would be it would be less likely to be caught in the recycling bin and would be caught at the recycling center where they would call and yeah. say hey we yes. found this gun and it traced down to here because our recycling bins get dumped by automatic trucks So who would notice? So in the end, Belinda's high-priced attorney just got her off of a murder charge. And then McCoy says, you know, I'm charging you with a different crime. So this rich, entitled bitch huddles up with her $500 an hour lawyer. And then for two seconds, goes, okay, I'll take 20 years. (laughs) (laughs) Never. Never in a million years. We've seen it over and over again. Rich people don't believe they're going to go to jail. No. why do not believe it. Because they don't. They just won't. Why give up so fast? Because the episode's almost over. Yeah, you gotta wrap it up. (laughs) You know what? Working in that cafe was really fucking hard. I'd rather do 20 years. 
upstate. Oh, I have a question. Yeah. Her husband was dead. Why was she still working in that fucking cafe? She liked it. Because <laughs> it would be too obvious. And she probably hadn't gotten all the, you know, stuff squared out yet. So she needed to keep running it. So when McCoy gets Belinda to take the deal, he ends up having a really good put down for her. Twelve people still acquitted me. Yeah. That's got to burn. <laughs> <laughs> well, remember, she did kill somebody named Burns, so. You totally forgot the best one-liner of the whole episode. When you absolutely, positively have to kill somebody overnight. Have you heard? Sling TV offers the news you love for less. Hey, wait. You look and sound just like me. I am you. I'm the same news programs on Sling TV for less. You mean you're me, but for less money. A lot less. I'm all the favorite news programs and more on Sling TV starting at just $40 a month. Everything great about me, but for less money? Which makes me greater, don't you think? Get the news you love and more for less. Start saving today. Visit sling.com to see your offer. Sling. In a fast-paced world, every day brings new challenges and new opportunities. At Strayer University, we know a thing or two about getting and staying ahead of change. For over 130 years, we've been providing students like you with innovative tools and customized support. So you can find your way forward and always keep striving. Visit Strayer.edu to learn more. Strayer University is certified to operate in Virginia by CHEV and has many campuses, including at 2121 15th Street North in Arlington, Virginia. Well, let's take a look at the real-life story that inspired this episode. It's time for Rip from the Headlines. You think you know who did it. You think you know who did it. But you don't know who did it. You don't know who did it. Rip from the Headlines. While plot points from this episode are inspired by Alfred Hitchcock's classic movie, Strangers on a Train, it's remembered as the final episode for star Jerry Orbach. Born in the Bronx in 1935, the son of a former vaudevillain, Jerome Orbach, grew up in Waukegan, Illinois, before returning to New York and the lights of Broadway. In the 1950s, he won fame in the theatre community for his skills as a song and dance man in classical musicals like The Fantastics, Guys and Dolls, Chicago and 42nd Street. In the 1970s, Orbach tried his hand at film, earning Critics' Choice nominations for his role as a police detective in Prince of the City. Fans best remember him as Dr. Houseman in Dirty Dancing and as the singing candelabra Lumiere in Disney's Beauty and the Beast. At first, he had little success in television. His recurring character on Murder, She Wrote got his own spin-off show, but the network didn't stick with The Law and Harry McGraw. It wasn't until Law and Order that the revered stage actor became a household name. Orbach died of prostate cancer in 2004. Three years later, the city renamed a stretch of 53rd Street and 8th Avenue, Jerry Orbach Way. Okay, Jerry was diagnosed with prostate cancer in 1994, mm-hmm. right after he started on Law & Order. Right. And he had radiation, and he learned that it metastasized. But he went on hormone therapy, and that added another 10 years to his life. Yep. We sometimes think about him being sick sort of in this last season, but he had been dealing with cancer the entire time he was on Law & Order. Thus is the nature of prostate cancer, my friend. Having had a case of prostate cancer in my family that lasted like 27 years, that's how it works. It's one of those things that like they say like 
if a man lives old enough, like every man will get it. It's one of those, it's like Mm -hmm. inevitable kind of cancer. But yeah, it's a very survivable kind of cancer. And a long, it's very sad that he died of this cancer. It really is because it's like fairly treatable. And it sounds like he got it caught early. Must have been a badass case of prostate cancer, right? It's heartbreaking. I mean, is there a good case of cancer? I don't know. But I mean, the fact that he was able to have 10 more years and quality years. Mm. He was on a network television show that was... And yeah, strain and yeah, he gave the greatest Oscars per, uh, musical performance of all time, I think, for Beauty and the Beast. Right. You saw that, right, Lisa? Yes. Yeah. I didn't um, I didn't know that he was that he was sick that entire time. And that's I mean, did they catch it early? Maybe they didn't catch it early. And that's why it eventually. Yeah, came. probably not. So in that final scene of this episode, uh, it's nice to go out on a whim. Uh. Lou. Uh, so I read an article by the onset photographer. She was someone who would take publicity photos of you know each episode and whatnot. In the article, they have this photograph that she took right after that scene, and it's a picture of Jerry, Apatha, and Jesse. And Jerry's in the middle smiling, and he's got his arms around them, grabbing them by the shoulders, and he's got a big smile, and it's like he's holding them up. And the two of them have their faces down, and they look devastated because. Everybody on set knew he was dying, and everybody just knew that this was not just a professional goodbye. I find that photo heart-wrenching. I don't know if that sort of – maybe there's a reason why that kind of emotional power wasn't written into the scene in front of the camera. He didn't want it, I bet, right? He probably did. Well, I mean – yeah, I guess he didn't want that. I well, mean, the other actors may not have been able to handle it if it was too emotional and too build up you know, like they, it, yeah. it, for, especially for them to have been, you know, basically actually saying goodbye to what was, you know, surely by that point, a dear, you know, friend, maybe mentor, maybe, you know, just someone they're inevitably close to, to then have to build up an actual goodbye crescendo the way you would a character goodbye. That makes way more sense, you know. Yeah. Yeah, and the character did hint at the, the the idea that in the next television season he would be a minor character on the Law and Order trial by jury. Hmm. Uh, he said, "I'd probably pick up some investigations with the DA," and That's that right. was job. And it, and he was given that job because they knew it was better for his health <sighs> and that he might be able to do something, you know. But he only appeared in two episodes before passing away. God, it's so... I'm sorry. It's just so unbelievably sad. Yeah. Thank you for this huge downer, Kevin. But R.I.P. Jerry Orbach, man. I love him. I still love him so how about, much. How about, a, how about some like fun facts about Jerry oh, Orbach? Oh, I'm ready. Uh, Jerry Orbach had an IQ of 163. Really? Really. How does... I mean, come on. How does anyone know really what their IQ is? Well, <laughs> Maybe he the took New a York test? Times said so. <laughs> um, he was an absolute pool shark. As we know, I, we see that on the show. We've seen that a couple of times, and he donated his corneas. Uh, he gave, he gave, but after he passed, uh, one person who was nearsighted and one person who was farsighted, they each got it. There's a great John Mulaney bit about that. I'll just leave it out there. So Orbach auditioned twice for Law in Order, and those roles each time went to George Zunza Ugh. and then Paul Sorvino. And so the third time is when he got it. So the reason he got the job is that Paul Sorvino left. Yeah. This is a great story here. He couldn't believe how cold it was shooting outside. (laughs) Right. And here's the thing. He thought that the cold weather was going to ruin his opera voice. Really? Paul Sorvino? Paul Sorvino. Yeah. Meanwhile, Jerry Orbach 
who still had a career in singing in things, didn't give a shit about that. Oh, yeah. Meanwhile, Jesse L. Martin, right. who if still you know, had a career in singing in things, didn't give but, a shit about that. But Jerry Orbach had a high IQ, so he knew that it was not going to bring He knew it was a stupid thing to say. And if you remember, if you ever watched Law & Order Season 2 when Servino's on, he wears this big Russian yeah. hat. Yeah. He did that. They, the costume designer <laughs> didn't say that. He just showed up at work. So George Zunzo was difficult An and, asshole. and mean. Yeah. Uh, Servino was difficult, but just sort of a blowhard. Uh, apparently, at one point, he like he said in front of the whole cast, I'm one of the five greatest living actors. <laughs> and then they do a scene, and it's something like, yeah, it was the car brown? And he blew the line over and over again. And Dan Florek said, you know, Paul, maybe you're only one of the best seven living actors. <laughs> So Orbach ran into Sorvino like a couple of weeks later after he got the job. And he says, I thank you. My kids thank you. My wife thanks you. My ex-wife thanks you. (laughs) In Departing Law and Order, though, Sorvino had the opportunity to instead create such works of art as Jersey Shore Shark Attack, (laughs) Sicilian Vampire, Lost Cat Cornea, and Undercover Grandpa. Sounds great. One of the greatest living actors of the time. Jerry Orbach has two boys, Chris Orbach, who is an actor and played Briscoe's nephew on SVU. His oldest son, Tony, does what? He creates crossword puzzles for the New York Times. Shut the fuck up. Wow. Probably has a very high IQ as well. Now, Jerry appeared in the movie The Gang That Couldn't Shoot Straight, and Joey uh, Gallo, the mobster that he played, or at least the character was based on him, right? He reached out and became friends with Jerry Orbach. So he was friends with the gangster, the real-life mobster that that he played. Yeah. Uh, So Gallo briefly moved into the Orbach's brownstone. He got married in their brownstone. (laughs) Wow. And he started working on his memoirs with Jerry's uh, wife, Marta. Wow. Wow. They stopped working on the memoir when he was rubbed out in a hit between seafood courses at Umberto's Clam House in 1972. Uh, So he was still like an active mobster? (laughs) (laughs) Well, active enough that they had to get rid of him. Jeez. Wow. He, He did make a dying declaration. What's that? I'm the one that put baby in the corner. Ah! <laughs> hey, that's going to do it for us. We want to thank our guest, Lisa Strawn. Lisa, where can our listeners follow you online? Uh, you can co- follow me on Twitter at L-P-A-R-K-E, which has just been my Twitter handle since like forever. Or you can um, check out the True Crime Podcast Festival at truecrimepodcastfestival.com. And God willing, we'll be able to all get together. Yes. And that was, we had a lot of disappointments in 2020, but not being there in Kansas City to see you and all the true crime fans, uh, that was that was rough. Lisa, you are part of our true crime festival heart. We love you. Thank you for bringing us to Chicago. I will never forget it. Oh, thank you guys. Your guys' like ongoing support and enthusiasm about the festival is like everything. It makes a huge difference. Uh, Rebecca Lavoy, how can our listeners follow you? I'm on Twitter and Instagram. And yes, I do tweet about my dog, Briscoe, all the time, who is not crossing the Rainbow Bridge any fucking time soon, at Reb Lavoy. And you can track me on Twitter at Kevin P. Flynn. You can also tweet to us at Law and Order Pod or follow us on Instagram at These Are Their Stories Podcast. Our newsreader was Cy Freighter. Our theme music was composed and performed by Uncanny Valleys. Line editing by Henry Lavoy. Content assistance from Travis Roy. Lily Flynn handles promotions. To get ad-free episodes of These Are Their Stories a week early, sign up for Stitcher Premium. 
All clips in this podcast were used in compliance with the U.S. Copyrights Act Fair Use Exemption for criticism and commentary. Special thanks to the elite squad of the Law & Order Wiki community for preserving the evidence. Go to lawandorderpodcast.com and sign up for our newsletter for a chance to be our next Law & Order Marathon winner. These Are Their Stories was recorded in the yoga loft above the bodega in Bay St. Louis, Mississippi studio, which is actually in New Hampshire, (laughs) and is a production of Partners in Crime Media. Partners in Crime Media. In a fast-paced world, every day brings new challenges and new opportunities. At Strayer University, we know a thing or two about getting and staying ahead of change. For over 130 years, we've been providing students like you with innovative tools and customized support. So you can find your way forward and always keep striving. Visit Strayer.edu to learn more. Strayer University is certified to operate in Virginia by CHEV and has many campuses, including at 2121 15th Street North in Arlington, Virginia.